Hello, our True History Spotify listeners. I have two special treats for you. I'm allowed by an author to put up two chapters from two of his books. The books are amazing, and when you hear the chapters, I'm sure you'll want to buy the full audiobook from Audible or Paperback or Kindle from Amazon. The title of the book chapter you're about to hear is called Black Ops, Aliens, Spirits, Bigfoot, and Our Untold History. There are 15 chapters in each book covering so many topics. This chapter is about ancient Egypt and its connection with the alien race called gods. We know them as Anunnaki. All links to everything can be found on my website, ourtruehistory.co.uk. I hope you enjoy. Chapter 4. Egypt. Chapter 3 started to show a connection between the Anunnaki and the Egyptian gods. This chapter continues this, along with how and why their advanced technology created such huge structures like the pyramids. Some people get confused between a tomb and a pyramid in Egypt. A tomb is a place where dead people are placed. A pyramid is not a tomb, and no people were ever buried in pyramids. A lot of people think the body of Tutankhamun was found in a pyramid, but it was not. It was found in a tomb in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. The Bible plays a part in Egypt's history, and a little-known fact is that the earliest record of any part of the New Testament was discovered there. It's three inches square and is a portion of John 1831, 33. It's known as John Ryland's Papyri, and dates back to A.D. 117, 138. Records show that King Menes, which means founder, was an Anunnaki, but we don't know which Anunnaki he was. He created the very first pharaoh around 3100 B.C. by appointing King Saladus as the first pharaoh god-king. Pharaohs had a true royal bloodline, royal as an alien bloodline, and they would even marry their own sisters to keep the bloodline pure. The word royal in this case is more of an any Anunnaki, rather than to the family that ruled their own planet Nibiru. In effect, a pharaoh was an Anunnaki and not a human, or sometimes in rare cases an offspring or hybrid. The Great Pyramid of Giza has long had a reputation for being built by aliens. There are so many reasons why people think this, and there are many reasons against it. The problem is that both are right, and it was built by both modern humans and the Anunnaki. But so many people focus on how the blocks were moved to make the pyramids that they forget to look at the infrastructure that would have been needed to get the blocks there in the first place from quarries. At the end of this section about pyramids, I will give a very little known fact that will totally end the discussion about how the huge blocks were moved and positioned, but for now, I will list the reasons why people claim it's not built by extraterrestrials, and then I'll list why it was. I will then list overlaps, which will show you that both human slaves and their extraterrestrial masters' gods created the pyramids. It was originally thought that the humans working on the pyramids were slaves, like the first humans were thousands of years before, but over time the Anunnaki created a hierarchy system in which the slaves were now paid and promoted for good work. Many modern Egyptologists have concluded the workers received two and a half copper pieces every month. Once we look at these points, we can then see that there is a connection to other sites and monuments around the world in that they were too difficult and complex for humans to build at the time of their construction. Therefore, it is easier to assume that they too were made by the combined efforts of both humans and extraterrestrials. Mainstream belief is that in Giza, the first pyramid built was the The Great Pyramid, the construction of which was ordered by Pharaoh Khufu around 2550 BC, 2528 BC. The second pyramid of Khafre was built around 2520 BC. Menkara's pyramid is the third and last big pyramid built in Giza around 2490 BC. Note that there is a difference of 30 years between Pyramid 2 and 3, 
which means Pyramid 2 would have been built in 30 years or less, so the workforce could then start on the third pyramid. Or two were built at the same time, and one was finished first, which would have been some feat of manpower. However, this can't be because each pyramid has been named as being built by different pharaohs who reigns were at different times. From those three pyramids, I'm looking at the first one, Pharaoh Khufu's Great Pyramid. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was around 50 stories high when it had the capstone on the top, which is now gone, but the capstone was about 30 foot high. There are an estimated 2.3 million stone blocks used in the Great Pyramid. There are no drawings, carvings, or any kind of documentation on the design of the pyramids. There's no blueprints, no scribbles on stone as they worked out the dimensions, nothing at all on earth that shows anything to do with the architecture plans or designs. This is the argument for why only humans made it. Around the Great Pyramid, there have been many tools found that humans would have used, for example, stone grinders, polishers, and copper tools. They could have built a ramp a mile long or a spiral ramp and pulled the blocks using huge ropes. Just a few 100 meters south of the Great Pyramid, there is a quarry in Giza, and the amount of stone taken from that quarry roughly adds up to the amount of stone in the Great Pyramid. To cut limestone, they used copper saws, and to cut granite, they used copper and sand. Although this took weeks to cut one side of a block, it could be done. There are some marks on some blocks that look like tool marks. The humans could have used wet sand to move blocks. With the right amount of water, sand turns into a sturdy surface and halves the force required to drag sleds loaded with rocks across the desert. There are no hieroglyphs anywhere that directly show how any pyramids were made, so the only reference we can see are the hieroglyphs that possibly reference stone that was used to make pyramids. On Sahel Island near Aswan, there is the Famine Stella which is an inscription written in hieroglyphs. Different translations from different people mean different things but it's thought there are some inscriptions that could be talking about stone that was used to build pyramids. That is the only place in the whole of Egypt that might reference anything to do with a pyramid. There is a theory that the underground chambers in the pyramid were part of a hydraulic ram pump. Water was placed higher than the pump, and a valve used to stop water coming through. Once the valve was opened, the water pressure could have pushed the blocks up high, allowing the workers at the top to use some type of crane and pulley system to retrieve that block and position it. No evidence of this method exists, though, and the pyramids are not hollow. They would have blocked themselves in after just a few levels high. The problem I see with this is that there's still the issue of getting the block from the water and into position. Really, the water pipe would need to be on the outside and not inside the pyramid because you will block yourself in at some point. Why humans didn't build it? The Pyramid of Khufu, the Great Pyramid in Giza, took 20 years to build according the mainstream Egyptologists which would mean human workers had to set each of the 2.3 million stone blocks in the exact position every two and a half minutes. The weight of each block on average is 2.5 tons, and the largest blocks were 50 tons. This would have been impossible for the following reasons. As suggested by those that believe humans built it, a ramp a mile long could have been used, but it would have needed to be a mile long, otherwise the angle would be too steep to pull blocks up. The quarry was a few hundred meters away, so it's not logical to move the heavy blocks a mile away just to start pulling them up a mile-long ramp back to the pyramid. They could have zigzagged the ramp so that the start was near the quarry, but that's still a mile they would have to travel to move the blocks a few hundred meters. The spiral ramp is possible, but the blocks would need to be placed down one at a time, end to end, and not one block here and one block the other side of the pyramid. There was not enough room to have the amount of people needed around each block to move it and put it in place. Even using ropes would mean a gap when the rope was removed. 
then it would have had to have been pushed to make the perfect fit, but there is just not enough room for that amount of people to push it. They could not have made the full tower of scaffolding before the pyramid was built, so each time two or three blocks were put in place, they would have had to build the extension to the scaffolding, taking even more time and reducing the two and a half minutes per block. The higher the pyramid, the harder it is to pull a block and would tire the pullers out really quickly. We know that some of the different types of stones and granite inside the pyramid were taken from other quarries because the compositions match those from other quarries which were huge distances away. Then there were the yearly Nile floods, which sometimes reached right up to the base of the pyramids. All work had to stop during these months. Now that two and a half minutes per block is more like one second per huge block. If humans pulled these blocks, the workforce would have been about 20,000 to 25,000 men, and that's a lot of mouths to feed each day in the desert. If humans used wet sand to move blocks, then they would have needed a road path for them to go from the quarry to the base of the pyramid. In order for the amount of blocks needed, they would have had to have one block cut in the quarry and being pulled every 10 feet in a row from the quarry just one hundreds of meters away. This is not enough space for the amount of humans needed to pull and push each block. Even if they had a huge wide path, when the blocks reached the base of the pyramid, they would bottleneck, and in a short time everything would grind to a halt because they had to layer each block one after each other on the pyramid and not one on each side at a time. They could have had rows of blocks going towards the pyramid, but when they got there, only one block would have been moved onto the pyramid at a time, leaving the other rows just sitting there waiting. There are some marks on a few stones that appear to be saw marks. So the conclusion is that the copper saws created those marks. However, the amount of copper saws required to cut 2.3 million stone blocks would be a huge amount, in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, yet only a mere handful have been found, which might suggest that saws were used, but not for the whole process. The saws didn't have teeth like modern saws. Instead, it suggested that it was sand that was used with the copper to rub against stone to cut it. There are so many monuments carved in Egypt, all supposedly carved by copper tools. Using copper chisels, they blunted so fast that a worker would need to use three every day. So let's say there were a 1,000 stone carvers for the 20 years they would need 20 million chisels. The number that have been found all over Egypt is hundreds, possibly thousands, but not millions. If the humans used sleds to move the stones, they would have needed over a million of them. They would break, so this figure includes the ones only one at a time can be placed that would have been damaged. Remember, they built it within 20 years. Every two and a half minutes, a block was put in place, so a line of blocks would have been following each other very closely. A million or more trees would have been used to build the sleds and a million or more ropes, but there is no evidence of that amount of trees, ropes, or sleds. Not many sleds at all have been found and were mainly used to move pharaohs around. The local trees were soft trees and wouldn't have been able to support the larger blocks. Then when the other two pyramids were built, they also would have needed more trees to make more sleds, so they would have either used the same sleds or had new ones built. Either way, there's no trace of the amount they would have needed. Why I believe that both humans and Anunnaki made the pyramids. The Anunnaki appear to have made sure that no evidence or use of technology was shown anywhere about them. A prime directive, then? Not to influence our development? Or any evidence has been taken away by the elite? In Sitchin's book, The Anunnaki Chronicles, he refers to Thoth as the keeper of the secrets of the pyramids. The Egyptians documented everything, from how they transported the pharaohs to what types of bread and cakes they made, 
but they never documented how they made any pyramids or even quarried the stone. If humans on their own built all three pyramids, it would have been their whole life's work and yet nothing is mentioned anywhere. But they did, however, carve strange, unknown, untranslated hieroglyphs. There are some drawings and carvings of items that we don't recognize that may be a glimpse of the Anunnaki technology. Hieroglyphics use more than 2,000 hieroglyphic characters and can be found everywhere in Egypt, even in houses dwellings of workers. But there are no hieroglyphics in the Great Pyramid. The famine Stella in Aswan, Egypt as mentioned above, really doesn't show who built the pyramids or how. It was inscribed around 330-231 BC, thousands of years after the pyramids were built, and the last pyramid in Egypt was built in 1800 BC. That is over 1,500 years difference, and the knowledge had long since been forgotten. The famine. Stella has a lot of writing and only a tiny bit possibly refers to stone. There is no connection between the stone it possibly mentions and the building of pyramids. The famine Stella mainly talks about a seven-year period of drought around the third dynasty of King Djoser. The pyramid shape was first used in ancient Mesopotamia, which is where the Anunnaki were first based. The human workers cut the blocks with tools from the Anunnaki, and the mortar was made and laid on the blocks by humans. But the complex design and inner underground tunnels of the pyramid, and moving placing the stones, were done by the Anunnaki and their technology. Depending on who you ask, mortar, for sticking, like we use cement, was or wasn't used on the Great Pyramid. Those that say it was, also say a plane, tank, helicopter, all appear to be drawn in Egypt. The mortar used is of an unknown origin, which had a higher hardness than the stones it was used on. All three pyramids at Giza are precisely aligned with the constellation of Orion. Interestingly so are three recently found pyramids in northern Italy, in the town of Montevecchia. There is no date regarding when they were made, but it's thought it was one thousands of years ago. However, later you'll find out mainstream dates are sometimes made up for us, and really they could be much older. The highest pyramid is 150 meters tall. This is even taller than the Great Pyramid, which is 139 meters. They are stone pyramids, but have been covered by ground and vegetation. The inclination degree of all three Italian pyramids is 42 to 43 degrees. They are also in a perfect alignment with the Orion constellation, as is the site of Teotihuacan in Mexico, built around 100 BC. Teotihuacan was one of the largest cities in the ancient world, with over 150,000 inhabitants at its peak. There is a pyramid structure within the site and is thought to be over 800 years newer than the last pyramid in Egypt. Even more recent, a discovery of a pyramid in Mexico was found buried under soil and trees. It's called the Great Pyramid of Cholula. The size of this pyramid, twice the volume and the base, is four times as big as the Great Pyramid in Egypt. It appears that the design of the pyramid changed over time. The pyramids in Mesopotamia were the ziggurat style and they were made 5200 BC. According to this historians, Egypt had a similar type as its first pyramid. A step pyramid in Saqqara, Egypt, dating back to 2700 BC, shows that the Mesopotamia style wasn't confined to just that area. Step pyramid in Egypt. The Anunnaki traveled to other countries, and it's not hard to imagine they wanted pyramids built there too. Or is it just a huge coincidence that all these other countries all created vast amounts of workers to build similar pyramids? Here is a list of countries that have pyramids Mesopotamia, Peru, Egypt, Sudan, Nigeria, Greece, Spain, China, Mesoamerica, a North America Roman Empire, India. 
Indonesia. Interestingly, at the time the pyramids were made, all of these countries had a god or gods, whereas England, for example, at that time didn't have a god or gods, and thus didn't have a pyramid. It makes sense that where the Anunnaki traveled to, they created pyramids. Pyramids are not so easily removed, and this gives us part of our history. Smaller artifacts can be destroyed or stolen. Thoth, the keeper of the secrets of the pyramids, traveled as he was called Ningishida in Mesopotamia, Hermes in Greece, and in Rome he was called Mercury. So it's possible he did a good job of keeping the secrets in different countries. Thoth stayed on Earth but didn't stay in Egypt due to the radiation from the nuclear blast. The blast from the war the Anunnaki had with each other, mentioned in the previous chapter. He moved to Mexico and was in charge of Teotihuacan, which was a center for processing minerals. In his time here on Earth he had many roles such as serving as a mediating power, making sure good and evil we always equal. He also served as scribe and was credited with the invention of hieroglyphs. The Temple of the Feathered Serpent Pyramid in Teotihuacan had a very recent discovery of large quantities of liquid mercury and metallic spheres in a chamber below the pyramid. Mercury was known to the ancient Hindus and Chinese and has been found in three 500-year-old Egyptian tombs. Mercury forms alloys with other metals such as cadmium, silver, zinc, and gold. These alloys are called amalgams and are used for extracting gold from ore, which suggests that Teotihuacan was a place that processed minerals. Also, because of the alignment of Orion, Thoth's connection to Egypt and the Anunnaki, it then makes sense that other ancient sites that have no explanation as to why or how they were built could have all been created by the same Anunnaki who went there to mine for gold. There are more ancient sites that align with Orion, such as Nabda Playa in the Nubian Desert. There is a stone calendar circle. The southerly line of three stones inside represented the three stars of Orion's belt, and the other three stones inside represented the shoulders and head stars of Orion as they appeared in the sky. Even the sight of the twin towers matched Orion. This may be a coincidence, but when you look back at our, our history and how things like the dollar bill has secret meanings, were the placing of the buildings designed that way? Above view, Giza, Twin Towers. Orion mainstream science will have you believe that the pyramids were made as tombs for the pharaohs that built them. When laid to rest in the pyramid, their soul would rise up through very narrow shafts towards the sky and even other star systems, because in the king's chamber, there's a southern shaft pointed to the star Al-Nitak, Zeta Orionis, in the constellation Orion. The ascending passage in the king's chamber pointed to the pole star Alpha Draconis. The shafts do appear to point to those constellations, but as you read on, you'll find out they actually don't. In fact, the shafts don't even break through to the outside. This is only a very recent discovery, and thus why they thought the shafts were made for a soul to travel through. Most importantly, no mummies were ever found in any pyramid. The air shafts in the king's and queen's chambers were not made as air shafts. They don't even go in a straight line as first thought. In 1993, a remote robot was sent into the shaft in the queen's chamber to explore the queen's chamber's two shafts. The northern shaft sharply turned to the west after about 27 feet, and the robot could go no further. The robot entered the southern shaft, and after 208 feet, it was stopped by a stone door or stone block with two copper handles. This stone blocked the entire shaft. Then on the 18th of September, 2002, another robot called Pyramid Rover was created to go around the bend in the northern shaft of the queen's chamber where the last robot could not go. The way people believe it to look, but really the small air shafts turn. 
The new robot turned the corner and came across another door or stone block also with two copper fittings, which people call handles. But both blocks in each shaft are both at 211 fifth inwards on each side of the pyramid. Exactly the same height. Footage of this was shown on the Discovery Channel and you may be able to see it online. In 1993, Rainer Stadelman, a German Egyptologist, believed the block or door in the southern shaft was a false door for the soul of the king to pass through on its way to Osiris. He also believed that the two copper fittings were handles that a king's spirit would use to move the door. The problem with this theory is that it was in the queen's chamber and not the king's chamber. Also at that time, he wasn't aware that the other shaft also had the same stone block. Why would a spirit need two shafts in each of the king's and queen's chamber? The copper fittings are hugely important as to why the pyramid was built. I will explain this shortly as there are more things you need to know before we explore the reason it was built. Even Zahi Hawass, who was an Egyptologist, archaeologist, and former Minister of State for Antiquities Affairs, has said that the king's chamber in the Great Pyramid is so-called, because even he doesn't believe that the chamber was meant for a pharaoh. Due to the fact that there's a granite rectangle in the so-called king's chamber, people assume it's a coffin or sarcophagus, yet no skeleton or mummy was ever in it. In fact, there was no lid to it. The lid is too big to have been taken out in one piece and the so-called coffin was added while building the pyramid and not placed in thereafter. The inside length of that coffin is 6.49 feet, with a width of 2.22 feet, barely enough room for someone to fit in, and they wouldn't have been able to wear a headdress and other garments but yet the room it is in is 17 fifth by 34 feet by 19 feet high and could easily have held a larger coffin. The coffin is made of a solid block of granite, not limestone like the building blocks, and mainstream archaeologists claim it was hollowed out with copper tools, which would be like using a plastic fork on concrete. However, a microscopic analysis of the coffin shows that a fixed point drill that used hard jewel bits and a drilling force of two tons was possibly used though there is no record of such a drill used by humans. There is a brand new theory that an Ark of the Covenant, a power source there were possibly more than one Ark, was inside the granite coffin, as both dimensions are almost the same. The problem with this is that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't inside the granite box when explorers first got there, and that the only way to remove it would have been through the walls of the pyramid, which we humans can't do. However, when you read the chapter on gray aliens, you'll see they can move through solid walls. As for the queen's chamber, Zahi Hawass states, there is no evidence it was ever used for a queen's burial. The Great Pyramid is said to be that of Khufu, and that is based on a red paint mark with a tiny resemblance to the hieroglyphic symbol for Khufu and a gang's name that possibly worked in the interior chamber. This is the only mention of Khufu anywhere that is even remotely connected to the pyramid so it's possible the gang were tomb raiders and not builders and simply added graffiti, as the marks do look like that. If we believe mainstream, then a great king builds the biggest ever pyramid for his death and doesn't allow anyone to see how it was built, or that it's even for him. We could counter that and say the pyramid was not a tomb or resting place, but instead it was built for a totally different reason. Inside the Great Pyramid, the temperature stays at a constant 20 degrees Celsius, 68 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the average temperature of the Earth, however, in 2015. An unusual heat difference between exterior blocks has been found at the Great Pyramid and in three others. A team of researchers and architects from Japan, Egypt, France, and Canada used infrared thermography to scan and map the pyramids and found that some of the limestone blocks were hotter than others. 
No valid reason has been given yet as to why this is happening and they don't know what's behind the blocks, so they are investigating more. Most people in their hearts know the pyramids were not built only by humans. If they believed that, then there would be no mystery and no need to use equipment to test the heat of the blocks. In 1978 in Egypt, the Japanese reportedly tried to duplicate a 1-4 scale version of the Great Pyramid of Giza using today's knowledge and technology. They failed do it. The modern tools broke over and over whilst cutting blocks, and they had to use jackhammers, but many of the blocks broke in two. The Japanese used barges they built to move the blocks downriver, but the blocks were too heavy and the barges capsized or sank. They used cranes to move the blocks in place, but most blocks were so chipped or damaged that it looked nothing like the hair-width gap between the blocks on the real pyramids. It appears no blocks on the real pyramids had any defects when they were placed there thousands of years ago. Aligned True North The Great Pyramid is the most accurately aligned building in the world and faces true north with only an error of 3 60th of a degree. The position of the North Pole moves over a long time. It is possible that the nuclear explosion which happened 2,024 years ago could have moved the ground slightly in Giza. There have also been many earthquakes in that area since the pyramids were built. The cornerstone foundations of the pyramid have ball and socket construction capable of dealing with heat expansion and earthquakes, which is one of the reasons it's still standing. The pyramid is really eight-sided and not four, as you would think. The centers of the four sides are indented, creating the eight-sided pyramid. But you can only see this effect under the proper lighting conditions, and it can only be seen from the air at dawn and sunset when the sun casts shadows on the pyramid. On the spring and autumn equinoxes, the curvature of the faces of the pyramid exactly match the radius of Earth. If this was designed like this, the makers would have had to have known the planet is round and what size it is. Spring and autumn equinoxes were really important to the Anunnaki. As they traveled around the world, many of the statues, buildings, or monuments, such as Stonehenge, were designed to show the equinoxes. It's not clear why they would have needed to make these for humans. It helps us know the first day of the autumn season, etc. But I find it hard to believe the Anunnaki needed such huge structures just to work out when the first day in a season was. Maybe there is another worldly reason? We have been forced to believe the Great Pyramid was for Khufu. It's in the Egyptian guidebooks and on TV programs and books, but the red paint marks I mentioned before are possibly fake. Most hieroglyph experts now believe these to be forgeries created by the person that discovered them. Richard Howard Weiss was trying to equal the discoveries of his rival, the Italian explorer Caviglia, who discovered inscriptions in tombs around, not in, the Great Pyramid. Modern researchers now think that Howard Weiss wanted to be the one that made a huge discovery, and thus he faked it. Howard Weiss would have used someone that didn't already have a pyramid, so he used Khufu. Requests have been made to verify the age of the paint, but they have been refused, and some people have been arrested for apparently taking chips of paint from the wall with a view to having them analyzed. With so many researchers now agreeing that the mark is fake, why does everyone want to keep the belief that it was Khufu's pyramid? For the same reason the Smithsonian destroyed the giant skeletons, to keep us all believing in their version of history. By keeping our past a secret, it allows for humans to fight each other in holy wars and creates a level of fear which is the best way to control the masses. The elite and the industrial military complex have advanced technology from crashed UFOs, tech that's been given to them by some alien races and tech they've created themselves, the most important being free energy.
If the public found out we don't need to kill the planet by using petrol and that religion as we know it is not what really happened, all of those elite would lose power over us, and they don't ever want that. Sadly, as we have found out, there is no evidence at all that the skilled laborers solely built the pyramids. There's no drawings on walls, no carvings showing slaves cutting or placing blocks, no statues of humans moving the blocks, no hieroglyphs showing the building process, nothing. But we get told all the time that slaves built the pyramids by hand, and this is the kind of information that if said enough, people will start to believe. Even the head of the Cairo University's archaeology department, Dr. Ala Shaheen, has said that there might be truth to the theory that aliens helped build the oldest pyramids of Giza. Those are just some of the reasons that humans couldn't have done it alone. And if all it was ever built for was as a resting place for the king and he never used it, what was the point in building it? Finally, to lay to rest the theory that humans built the pyramids on their own, there is a little-known fact that has been kept from the public. There is a pyramid 8 km north of the Great Pyramids called Pyramid of Jedifrey in Abu Rawasht, remains of a pyramid on top of Abu Rawasht Mountain, steep hill. It's a destroyed pyramid on the top of a very steep hill, so steep that it would be impossible for humans to have pulled these blocks to the top. There are some huge, deep cut-out trenches through the large hill and some other unexplained stone structures. It's been a military area for many years and is off-limits to the general public. Why do you think these vast ancient ruins are so important to the military and that it's not something they want the public to see? There are possibly more sites that we have not been told about and never will. Even if advanced technology from an alien race was used to build it the Great Pyramid, that's still a very short period of time. And I believe this time frame was given because of a few reasons. Khufu's reign from 2589-2566 BC, which is 63 years according to Manetho, or according to modern historians, 23 or 46 years. In order for his pyramid to be built, it would have to have been done in his lifetime or completed soon after his death, if it's to be believed it was a tomb. But because it's suspected the only mention of Khufu in the pyramid is fake, then the time frame on when it was built and how long it took to build could also be wrong. Carbon dating. Cosmic rays combine with the atmospheric nitrogen to create radiocarbon, which is constantly being created in the atmosphere. In order to date something using the carbon dating, organic material is required such as wood, bones, plants, etc. So because people were buried in tombs in Egypt, they can carbon date the bodies, and using guesswork they can put an age to the Great Pyramid. I say guesswork because there are no organic elements in or on the Great Pyramid and no bodies inside it. Carbon dating was done on Khufu's boat, which gave the time frame as 2600 BC, which is fine, and that is the time Khufu was around, but that doesn't mean the pyramid belonged to him at that time. Remember, the only reference to Khufu was the fake graffiti. Looking at things like ancient pottery, we can see how the styles changed from one period to another. Some pottery had pharaohs' names on it so this helped date them. However, there were no artifacts or pottery of any kind found in the Great Pyramid, and nothing was found in any Giza pyramid, although there seems to be some people now claiming they have items that can be carbon-dated that were from the pyramids. I believe this is another attempt to force us to believe what they want us to. There is no proof of when the Great Pyramid was built, so it's possible that it took longer than 20 years to build. Could this mean, then, that it was made just by humans over a longer period of time? No because the time frame as to when it was built is well over 10,000 years ago. I'll explain shortly why. That's over 5,000 years older from when it is said to have been built. 
If humans were building pyramid 10,000 years ago, they would have still needed copper for tools. Copper was first used over 10,000 years ago. One of the oldest copper items ever found was a copper pendant dated around 8700 BC. It was discovered in northern Iraq, which is where the Anunnaki were. Copper smelting appears to have started at different times in different countries, all of them still one thousands of years behind where the Anunnaki were. Mesopotamia. Remember that the ziggurat pyramids in Mesopotamia are older than in Egypt, and the Anunnaki arrived there some 450,000 years ago. 15,000 years ago, Ice Age humans were in hunter-gatherer tribes, which built shelters from mammoth bones, and they made clothes from animal furs. The problem is that man so was primitive 10,000 years ago that he wouldn't have had the determination to build such a structure or a reason to. Unless man was smarter than we think 10,000 years ago in that area and the rest of the world was not so smart. Man did in fact have a larger brain than we do now. I'll explain first why the Great Pyramid could be over 10,000 years old and then how and why it was built. The constellation Orion only matched the start of the shafts over 10,000 years ago. Of course, it's possible that the shafts were never aligned with anything, and that we have looked so hard for evidence of why the shafts were there, that we even looked up to the sky and then assumed that the shafts align with the stars. However, it's possible they were indeed aligned to the stars, as there are too many ancient sites that match star systems for them to be coincidence. Remember recently we have found out the shafts bend at some point and do not continue in the straight line towards the Orion constellation, so it's possible that the pyramids in Giza aligned to a different star set 10,000 than they did 5,000 years ago. An American mystic called Edgar Cayce was born in 1877 and died in 1945. He could answer questions while in a trance on subjects as varied as reincarnation, healing, Atlantis, wars, and future events. He is also referred to as the sleeping prophet. There's a lot of debate on how accurate he was on describing the subjects. Not all of his future predictions have come true, and some could argue that as the future is not set in stone, we avoided some of his predictions simply by doing different things than what he envisioned us doing. Edgar gave an approximately 22,000 readings over a period of 43 years. Only about 14,000 readings are currently available. One such reading was as follows. In 1938, Edgar predicted that a portion of the temples may yet be discovered under the slime of ages and seawater near Bimini, Expect it in 1968 or 1969. The Bimini Road was found in 1968. Regarding the Great Pyramid, Edgar claimed it took 100 years in construction which begun and was completed in the period of Ararat, with Hermes and Ra. 10,490 to 10,390. It's understandable that it could have taken 100 years to complete, and could be argued that only humans built it in that longer time frame. But just because it's a longer time frame doesn't mean that man from 10,000 years ago could have built it alone. We can break it down like this. Even with advanced technologies, the Anunnaki were not miracle workers. Blocks still took time to place down. Look at a skyscraper. Most of the building is prefabricated off-site, which makes them easier and quicker to erect. But even with modern cranes, the Burj Khalifa took five years to build. That five years is from the moment they started on-site. If all the other companies didn't pre-make the steel, pre-make the concrete, pre-designed it, etc. Even with modern equipment that would have taken 20 years or more from start to finish. The point is that if humans had just one crane and tried to build the Great Pyramid in Egypt today, from start to finish, working normal hours and stopping when the Nile floods, then 100 years would be about right. But that's with a modern crane, 
If the Anunnaki had moving equipment, it would not mean the blocks instantly appeared on top of each other. It still takes time to move something even if you have advanced technologies. If the Great Pyramid is older than we are told, what else could be? The Sphinx. Mainstream science tells us that it was built in 4th Dynasty, 2575-2467 BCE, by the Pharaoh Khafre. But there is no evidence of this at all. Just like the Great Pyramid, there are no writings or artifacts that connect the Sphinx and Khafre. It was just another guess, and thus that's how they got the date that they think it was built. An accumulating body of evidence, both geological and archaeological, shows the Sphinx is much older than the Fourth Dynasty and was possibly restored by Khafre during his reign. I will explain the restoration later. Professor of Geology at Boston University Robert Schock has confirmed that there is extreme erosion on the body of the Sphinx that was not the result of sand and wind, which is what the mainstream had assumed, but instead was eroded by rainfall. The last period of significant rainfall ended between the late 4th and early 3rd millennium BC. The Sphinx's construction must have been a long time before that in order for it to have eroded the amount it did. I will talk more about the Sphinx later. If the Sphinx is older than we think, then it's possible that the Great Pyramid is also older than we think, and that the outer casing on the Great Pyramid, which has all but gone, would have had to bear the brunt of any rainfall, possibly causing the outer casing to erode, and thus why it's almost all gone. If the Great Pyramid is older than we are told, then it would have been even harder to build with just humans, which then begs the question, how were the blocks moved? The most logical way the blocks were moved and positioned is by using levitation. I'm sure you're thinking this is magic and that we can't levitate anything. However, there are now many people that can levitate objects using electric and or sound. To explain this, we can look at the modern ways sound is used. If a speaker had sand on it, the vibrations will cause the sand to jump up and down. To break a glass, a certain sound vibration is needed, any higher or lower, and it won't work. The military use high-power sound waves that can destroy or disrupt the eardrums of a target and cause severe pain or disorientation. This has been used to incapacitate people in counter-terrorist and crowd-control settings. This sound we cannot hear at all. Parametric speakers which are real and for sale now create a directional sound wave, for example, if three people are all standing side by side and the parametric speaker was aimed at the person in the middle, only that person would hear the music and the other two people would not hear anything. There are a few devices for sale that are small and when placed on pretty much any surface will allow that surface to become a speaker. The sound will come out of whatever the device is placed on. There are lots of people on YouTube that have managed to levitate quartz using a homemade power supply. Quartz is found in many of the block types used in pyramids. The list goes on with different ways we can now levitate objects. These were just some of the technologies we have at the moment. In 10 years' time, these would look like old VHS tapes. Very outdated. If we were to mix some of the above technologies, then we could create a directional sound beam which could work with another device that's sitting on something for example, transmitter and receiver, a handheld sonic device that sends a high frequency to a receiver on a limestone block that reacts and vibrates the block. This would then be able to select just one block at a time and not levitate any of the blocks around it. The blocks in the pyramids are made from limestone, and how they would be manipulated to levitate is due to the crystalline structure of the blocks which is made of dipole molecules. A dipole is when two atoms in a molecule has two opposite charges a magnetic positive and negative. Every stone and molecule has harmonic frequency, and when that frequency is reached, 
just like the voice breaking glass, it will repel the gravity and will levitate. There are many recently discoveries in this field of science called levitation. The University of Dundee in Scotland claimed that acoustic holograms can act like a tractor beam and could theoretically suck in objects. Professor Bruce Drinkwater and his students ran computer simulations with different patterns of sound waves looking for the right combination of a low-pressure region surrounded by high-pressure zones. They found that three different acoustic force fields can grab, twirl, and manipulate objects. Three-dimensional mid-air acoustic manipulation. This has been used to levitate lightweight particles and water droplets using ultrasonic phased arrays. You can see videos of this fully working online. Canadian John Hutchinson is an inventor and claims to have created anti-gravity levitation and has put the video demonstrations online for all to see. If his claims are real, then he's managed to levitate a bowling ball amongst other things. I should mention Coral Castle because there are theories that it was built using some type of anti-gravity levitation. Edward Leedskalnin, 1887-1951, was a Latvian emigrant who moved to the United States, and he single-handedly created the stone monument known as Coral Castle in Florida. Huge blocks of stones were moved and positioned to make interesting designs. He even had a huge solid stone block as a door that was perfectly pivoted in its center. It's said that before going to America, he went to Egypt and studied ancient texts in the library. When asked how he moved the stones, he replied, I understand the laws of weight and leverage, and I know the secrets of the people who built the pyramids. Eyewitnesses reported seeing huge blocks being levitated by him. There is some footage found recently showing what appears to be Edward moving large blocks using a pulley system, which would debunk anti-gravity. However, people have said the reason why he worked alone and mostly at night was because he didn't want anyone to see how he was doing it. So by creating and allowing pictures and film with a pulley system was his way of showing something but not the real secret. Other arguments that are on the side of anti-gravity claim that the tripod he used was nowhere near big enough to move the larger blocks onto the top of the tiers. When the blocks arrived by truck, Edward told the truck drivers to park the trucks outside with the huge blocks on it, and then in the morning the drivers would take their empty trucks back. Ancient Uses of Levitation Tibetan priests were able to lift boulders up to the tops of mountains using sound from musical drums. Two hundred men directed the sound waves in such a way that an anti-gravitational effect was achieved. There are a few reports of researchers that gained trust with the priests and monks and were shown large rocks levitating. During World War II, the Nazis went looking for ancient artifacts that could be used as weapons, such as the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail, and the secrets of levitation from the Tibetan monks. There are three stones each weighing over 1,000 tons at the Temple of Jupiter in Baalbek, Lebanon. Although no proof of how they were moved exists, we couldn't do that today. There's only a few cranes in the world that can lift 1,000 tons, such as the giant Liebherr LR 1100, which is as big as a block of flats. The story of Jericho in the Bible tells of the Israelites marching around their enemies' walls. They had trumpets and drums and the Ark of the Covenant, but they did not use them. For six days they walked around the massive wall, and on the seventh day they blew the trumpets and banged the drums, and it's thought the Ark of the Covenant amplified the sound waves which made the walls fall. Thirteen thousand feet, two miles above sea level, there is an isolated plateau in Tiahuanaco, Bolivia. There is an ancient site made from stone and an impressive monument called Puerta del Sol, or Sun Gate. It weighs ten tons. What makes this site so special is that the quarry is over ten miles away, 
and there's possibly over a million large blocks of stone that would have had to have been moved up the two miles above sea level and along ten miles. As with every ancient site, there are no writings, drawings, or anything that shows us how they did it. Another ancient stone site in the Federated States of Micronesia called Nan Madol has a lost city and is made up of hundreds of stacked stone logs, each around 18 foot long. Each stone is over 2.5 tons and no archaeologist can explain how they made the site. As time moves on for us and we learn to create new technologies, we are finding it easier to explain many mysteries from ancient times. Just a hundred years ago, sound frequencies simply meant a gramophone record playing. Now we have sonar, echolocation, ultrasound, and ultrasonic, which are just some of the modern uses for sound frequencies. So it's not so hard to believe now that levitation is possible and is the one common-sense answer to how the blocks were moved, raised up to the top of the Great Pyramid, and precisely positioned. Ask that question again in 30 years when we have the technology to levitate objects, and I'm sure the answer will be, what a stupid question. Of course they used sound levitation, we do it all the time now. Ask a similar question to someone from the 1800s, how is it possible to travel from England to America within one day? And their answer would be, it's impossible. You have to go by ship, which takes weeks. Why it was built. Where it was built is the reason as to why it was built, and the exact location was not by chance. The Great Pyramid was built directly on a ley line. Our planet has ley lines, and these are straight fault lines in the Earth's tectonic plates. The magnetic energy that is released is very powerful. They are also sometimes called planetary energetic grid lines, and the intersecting points are sometimes called chakras. There are 12 vile vortices which are situated along particular lines of latitude. Five of the vortices are on the same latitude to the north of the equator. Five are on the same latitude to the south. The other two are the south and north poles. We will just concentrate on where the Great Pyramid is in relation to these effects. These days, ley lines are thought of as something that's not really there or as spiritual and mystical energies from the ground. The native Indians of America call them spirit lines, and when their shamans wanted to contact spirits, they would use the electromagnetic energy in these lines. Scientists cannot find evidence of these ley lines. They have tried magnetometers and other scientific devices. So does that mean ley lines are not real? No, it just means with the technology we have now, we can't detect it. Birds and animals will run away when an earthquake is due, yet we've only just got technology that will warn us. Dowsing. A human uses a rod, stick, or object hung from a string to locate such things as underground water, lost persons, hidden metal, golf balls, buried treasure, oil, etc. This has worked so many times for so many different people, and yet just like ley lines, we don't have the technology to work out why. Ghosts, orbs, and auras. These are seen in photos, and yet we can't work out why. Deja vu. It happens to everyone at some point, but because scientists don't have a device to test this, they will tell you that you're nuts. My point is that just because at this moment in time we can't necessarily prove something is real, it doesn't mean it's not real. Our world has large ley lines, but countries have small ones that run up and down it, and we are going to focus on the large ley lines as they form a grid around the Earth. The planetary energetic grid is where the intersecting points form a grid or matrix. These grid points can create the strongest power places on the planet. The Great Pyramid is on one of the intersections of the grid, and at look other sites around the world. The distances are equal to each other. When the grid is mapped out, it shows that most of the ancient sites are right on each intersection of ley lines and vortices. Here are just some of those sites. Giza, 
the Great Pyramid Mohenjo-Daro-Rama Empire Culture, Xi'an Pyramids in China, Algerian Megalithic Ruins Bimini, Bahamas Bermuda Triangle Bangkok and Angkor Wat Megaliths at Aksum Easter Island, and its megalith Sarawak Borneo, Ancient Megalithic Structures, Zimbabwe, Ancient Mines and Structures Pompeii Island, Megalithic City of Non Metal Lima, Peru, Boundary of the Nazca Plate, Pisco, The Candelabra of the Andes, Giant Ground Drawings also called Geoglyphs, Nazca Lines, Southern Japan. It's called the Dragon's Triangle. And Japan has a no-plane boat law stopping anyone going into it because so many planes and ships have disappeared there. The connection between ancient sites and a power grid does make it seem like people that made those sites understood the world was round and knew of a way to tap into its energy. I mentioned in Chapter 3 that there is no infrastructure left behind by the Anunnaki. They did leave something behind, something they created, and when they left, they had no need for it. They took everything else with them except the power plant, the Great Pyramid. I would love to go into the finer details on how it works, but it would take up another two, three chapters in the book. I will try to give as much detail below for you to be able to make your own mind. Then if you want, you can research it as there is now a growing number of non-mainstream researchers that have also put their findings out there for the world to see. Nikola Tesla tried to create free energy a way to transfer electrical currents through the air or ground, and anyone with a receiver could use that energy. The free part of his energy comes from all around us. The atmosphere, ground, and even anything living. Quantum physics has shown us that all matter is energy at its subatomic core. Tesla did manage to harness electricity and send it to another location further away. To create the electrical energy, Tesla built a 57-meter tower called Wardenclyffe Tower in 1901. If Tesla had known about ley lines, he might have positioned the tower on an intersection which could have increased the power output. Sadly, the person backing him financially was J.P. Morgan, and apparently he didn't want the world to have free electricity and stopped Tesla's funding. Plato had his thoughts about earth grids and formulated a theory that the base structure of the planet evolved geometrically, from the simplest shapes to increasingly complex ones. These shapes are called platonic solids and include the tetrahedron, the dodecahedron, the octahedron, the icosahedron, and the simple cube. To make the Great Pyramid a power plant for their devices, other pyramids for refining gold and others for possibly recharging their spacecraft in orbit, they all required the right type of outer stones. Limestone was used as it acted as an insulator to keep energy inside. The white tufa limestone does not contain magnesium. Inner stones. The inner limestone blocks were made of a different type of limestone which contained crystal and a small amount on metal. These stones become a high electrical conductor. Granite. The granite used within the shafts becomes slightly radioactive when it's acting as a conductor. This then creates ionization of the air inside the shafts. A capstone. The very top point of the pyramid is thought to have been made from gold, although it's long since been removed. Gold is perfect for conducting electricity. The Giza Plateau has a limestone base. The Sphinx was carved out of the rock itself in one whole piece, digging down to create it. The pyramids are on top of the limestone and are created from limestone from quarries. The plateau is full of underground water channels. The pyramids are above limestone layers. Where the water is below, there are special layers of rocks that can transmit electricity upward, a process known as aquifers, and they carry the underground water to the surface. The Nile River goes through the aquifers and produces an electric current, which is known as physioelectricity. 
Deep under the pyramid, there are underground chambers with granite acting as conductors. Those are the basic details of why it was most likely to be a power plant. There are a few different versions of what happens using the above-mentioned stones and water. A theory that Christopher Dunn suggests is that the Great Pyramid is the perfect size to vibrate with the Earth's own pulse frequency. Dunn suggests the King's Chamber and Grand Gallery could have been equipped to convert the Earth's low frequencies into higher energetic frequencies. Each of the theories that people have suggested as to how the power plant worked are really well thought out, and although some have minor issues, I believe it's probably a mix of these theories that is the true answer. In the Queen's Chamber, researchers have found traces of zinc and hydrochloric acid. The thought is that the northern shaft had hydrated zinc, and the southern shaft was filled with hydrochloric acid which would trigger combustion in the Queen's Chamber which would form hydrogen. Researchers found evidence of the use of hydrogen in the King's Chamber. Uses of hydrogen are, it's lighter than air, it can lift a balloon in the air. Airships called zeppelins used hydrogen. Hydrogen is used as fuel. It is one of the cleanest, and when it burns, the remaining output is water. If hydrogen is heated to very high temperatures, like the heat of the sun, this creates thermonuclear energy. You can use an atomic bomb to create a high enough temperature, which when added to hydrogen, you can create a hydrogen bomb. When Egyptologists first found the pyramids, there was no understanding of hydrogen or what it could be used for. It's still a really new element for us as we are adding it to cars and are trying to make homes run on it. In another 30 years, we would have a far greater understanding of hydrogen and would be able to see clearer how the Great Pyramid used this clean energy. The energy from the pyramid would then be sent out from the top capstone to receivers that can pick up that frequency, and then that in turn could relay the energy to the next receiver. So what was the point of having power in ancient Egypt? There were no light bulbs to power. No devices that needed power. Or were there? There was no soot in the Great Pyramid from torch fire, so researchers tried to explain how the workers inside the pyramid could see anything. They tried reflecting materials like copper and other metals to bounce off mirrors all around the pyramid. The light faded after a few mirrors. In the Temple of Hathor at Dendera, there are reliefs which show what looks like a bulb with a filament and a wire coming from it to a box. The box must have been a power supply because if they used the light in the pyramid while making the pyramid, then it wouldn't have produced power until it was complete. Some people argue that there needs to be two filaments, and in the picture we can only see one. It is possible that in a 2D drawing we can only see one. It's also possible that just because we use two filaments in our bulbs that they didn't, and instead may have used plasma or another type of gas to light up. There would have been no point in building a huge pyramid just to power light bulbs. This is where Tesla's free energy tower comes in. Tall being holding some device. Just like Tesla's tower, the pyramid could transmit that energy over vast distances to obelisks around the world. Obelisks are very tall, tapering stone pillars. They normally have a rectangular or square or cross section and have a pyramid-like shaped top. They are thought to be a monument or landmark. There is no proof that they were made as monument or landmark. Some are right near real monuments which are more grand than a stone obelisk pillar. They are all ancient and can be found all over the world and are carved from a single huge block of stone. Some of the obelisks are right at the points of the ley lines which allows the idea that they connect to each other either using energy from above the ground or below. Many of them are constructed out of granite which contains a high concentration of quartz crystal. Quartz can convert the Earth's electrical vibrations into energy by the process known as piezoelectricity. 
Just like the pyramids, why would people all over the world all want to create a tall and very heavy stone block made of the same material as other obelisks around the world? There's no reason for the ancient world to all want to make obelisks as a landmark or monument. Not all pyramids were made for creating power. As mentioned before, some were used to refine ore, and others uses which we still don't know about. The reason that no writings or drawings of any kind that explain why the pyramids or obelisks were built is because the rulers were either Anunnaki or hybrids, and kept that knowledge within their own bloodline. See chapter about bloodlines for more information. If the Great Pyramid was a power plant, and could send power to other pyramids or obelisks, this would explain why no other pyramids are the same. Each one is different, and could produce different types of energy. People further away could have received the energy wirelessly, just like Tesla did, and thus create growing cities in different locations without the need to build power plants there. Who were the Egyptian rulers? We can see this by looking at the Egyptian rulers with the same elongated skulls as the Anunnaki have. King Tutankhamun, often referred to as King Tut, was not only depicted having an elongated skull, but he had a cone-shaped head in real life. Egyptian writings show Pharaoh Akhenaten is descended from the gods and he also had an elongated skull. Medical doctors have tried to say he had a condition called craniosynostosis, however the medical profession have not claimed that about all the others with elongated heads. Queen Neferneferuaten Nefertiti was the wife of Akhenaten, and she also had an elongated skull. Unless the medical profession can say that craniosynostosis is contagious, then there's no way that condition would have affected his wife. The Book of Enoch spoke about rulers changing places with each other over different countries. This explains why elongated skulls are found in other countries. Stone Carving of Akhenaten and Nefertiti Queen Nefertiti The picture of the Pope shows him wearing an elongated hat. The Vatican are very much interested in our history, and probably know more about the real history than we do. They are also interested in what's going on in space, and they have their own observatory in Italy. The Mayan Empire, which is still a mystery to mainstream archaeologists, had a ruler, Kainich Janab Pakal, and he reigned between 615, 683 CE. Lord Pakal also had an elongated skull, and radio host Kevin Smith claims that the excavation team leaked information that Pakal was a giant, had six toes and fingers, and had a cone-shaped skull. What's interesting about the comment of Pakal being a giant is that the Anunnaki were over eight fetit. I don't think Pakal was a Nephilim giant because there is no record of a giant that size ruling anywhere as they were outcasts and wouldn't have been able or allowed to create the Mayan Empire. It's more likely that Pakal was either an Anunnaki or a smaller hybrid like Noah because of the timeline that Pakal lived, and the Nephilim appear to have been the first offspring hybrids. As time went on, those giants were not born anymore. There's a lot of similarities between the Sumerians and the Egyptians. Too many to be coincidence. The Book of Enoch explained that from Sumeria the Anunnaki moved into Egypt. Egypt's early dynastic period has a huge amount in common with the Sumerians. Egyptian hieroglyphic writing appears to be a derivative of the Sumerian writings. An architectural feature called paneled facade is found in Egyptian tombs, which is originally from Sumerian temples. These buildings are almost exactly the same, so I would suggest the same designer created them. However, mainstream archaeologists will say that it's merely a copy because they had seen it in Sumeria first, and they then went back to Egypt, got their own local architect, went back to Sumeria, studied every inch of the buildings, and then went back and recreated it. 
Every building, drawing, and statue built in Egypt and Sumeria is perfectly symmetrical and proportioned, all carved with copper tools, we are told. If we look at just one of the statues, the statue of Rameses II at Memphis is huge at 11 meters, 36 feet, high, and yet so precise that most modern artists agree that it could not have been done by hand. There are no errors in its construction, and it's made from red granite, which is really hard to cut in a straight line. Many of the huge Egyptian statues are carved in solid stone. If the Sumerians and Egyptians created such precise statues and sculptures, why are they all in perfect proportion? The statue of Rameses II. Statues are so perfectly aligned. The Sphinx. Is it really possible that the Sphinx was built the way we see it today? The head of a man is not in proportion to the rest of the lion body. This must be one of the only statues that is not perfectly aligned. The reason this is not perfect is because the human head on the lion-type body was originally not a human head. The original design was possibly the head of Anubis, which is an animal head. It's not clear why the original head broke, but it's fairly clear that because it was protruding out and got thinner, it's possible that it was either damaged over time with rain, I'll cover rain in the desert in a moment, or it was destroyed by vandals or enemies. The Sphinx was then repaired by one or more pharaohs later to look like them. When it was being built, the stone around the Sphinx was removed, which created a large area below the rest of the land, over time that was filled in with blowing sand. And when the first archaeologists came to uncover the Sphinx, all they could see was the human head. It is 66 feet high and an impressive 240 feet long. The only human head animal body statue in Egypt I can find from that time period is the Sphinx, and there appears to be no other carving or drawing with it that way around. There are copies of the Sphinx in Egypt with a human head, but these are newer than the original Sphinx and are thought to be smaller copies of it from when the human head was carved. There are, however, loads of animal head human body statues and drawings which leads me to believe that the Sphinx really wasn't originally designed with a human head. Ancient texts all describe the area around the Sphinx as the Lake of the Jackal, the Channel of Anubis, or the Channel of the God. Notice the word Anubis. Anu was a name used in Sumeria and with the Anunnaki, like Anu the King and many others. Was this a coincidence that in Egypt they used the same types of names as the Anunnaki? The Sphinx was buried in sand Anubis as a full jackal statue found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. The word jackal is not really the correct translation from Egyptian texts, but we have called Anubis a jackal because he looks like one. It's still possible that the Sphinx was built way before Anubis in the shape of a lion or jackal-type animal, and then over time it became associated with Anubis and he was then given the jackal face, to hide an elongated skull as some have done. If the Sphinx was really made in the image of Anubis, then the dates we are told could be wrong. We are told that it was built in 2520 to 2494 BC by Pharaoh Khafre. Anubis was around during that time, but he was there hundreds of years before. He had a long lifespan. Anubis was the most important god of the dead. See 3100 C 2686 BC. Anubis was also drawn in full animal form as a jackal head and body. It appears he continued way up to C-26, 86 C-21, 81 BC, as he is spoken about in the pyramid texts of the Old Kingdom, meaning he lived far longer than any human, leading to the idea he was, as with all those that lived for thousands of years, an Anunnaki, or a hybrid offspring. Due to the fact that Anubis was shown as a jackal as far back as 2181 BC, it's possible the Sphinx was made then or even before 
which fits better with the new theories, below, that the Sphinx is a lot older than we are told. The area around the Sphinx was hollowed out, and there are a large number of people that believe it was filled with water and used as a moat, with the water coming from the Nile. There's a lot of water erosion on the Sphinx, and there's two arguments for this. The first is that the water in the moat caused the erosion. The problem with this is that unless the builders wanted it flooded, they wouldn't have built it where they did. If it was an accident that water flooded in and around the Sphinx, why did the pyramids get built after the Sphinx but right near the Nile? The other counter-argument is that the Sphinx is older than 2520 to 2494 BC, and the water erosion was because Egypt had severe flooding at the end of the last ice age, c. 15,000, 10,000 BC. With these new dates, it's possible that both the Sphinx and Great Pyramid were built around the same time, over 10,000 years ago. Even if the Sphinx is that old, why was it built? Mainstream Egyptologists say that there are no more hidden entrances or tunnels connected to the Sphinx, and therefore there is no mystery about it other than it being a monument. However, they said this in the 1980s, but in 1995, when the Egyptian Antiquities Organization refurbished the old parking lot east of the Sphinx, one of the workers accidentally unearthed part of a complex of ancient underground pathways and galleries, showing that there still may be more hidden secrets to the Sphinx. Let's not forget that the establishments don't want us to know our true history, so it's possible they are already aware of hidden secrets that they keep hidden. The breastplate on the front of the Sphinx is called the Dream Stele and shows human heads on the Sphinxes, but this stele is regarded as being added a long time after the Sphinx was built. There is an Egyptian myth that states the afterworld is guarded by two huge lions or Sphinxes, which are called Acre and are shown on the Sphinx stele. As yet, no other Sphinx has been found, but archaeologists have said that less than 1% of ancient Egypt has been discovered. Of course, it's possible it's been found, and we haven't been told. Maybe it's in Abu Rawasht being guarded by the military. Just like the pyramids, there's no drawings or hieroglyphics showing why or what the Sphinx was built for. Sphinx stele with two opposite-facing figures. The Sphinx points out toward the horizon where the sun rises each spring and autumn, and it's thought that its purpose is a time marker with the equinox. That's a pretty big and strange design just to point to where the sun rises. It's possible that was a secondary reason for its purpose. If that is the case, then what is its main reason? There are many theories such as it has an ancient alien library under it, or that someone hid a teleporter, Stargate, under it that can take you to another world. The library theory is that under the Sphinx there is a hall of records rumored to be hidden under one of the paws at the time of King Imhotep. All information regarding the Anunnaki and humans would be there. There have been site searches done and nothing was found, but as we know it's possible they already know or they are scared for us to find out, and they won't allow any modern equipment to scan under the Sphinx. NASA's Mars rover has taken a picture of what appears to be a Sphinx on Mars with a giant pyramid shape behind it. Could this be the second Sphinx and the path to the underworld is really a transporter that can send someone to another planet? Mars being a base station at the time for the Anunnaki. Until more independent researchers are allowed to be part of the team that control any digs in Egypt, we will continue to speculate. After life, Anubis was also depicted as a protector of graves and an embalmer, but Egypt wasn't the first place on Earth to worry about the afterlife. The Anunnaki knew and talked about the afterlife. Ancient Mesopotamians saw the afterlife as the cosmic opposite of the heavens and as a cloudy version of life on Earth. It was thought to lie a vast distance from the realm of those living, and yet only a short distance from the Earth's surface. 
It's fairly clear that in Egypt and Mesopotamia, over the thousands of years of writings, drawings, and hieroglyphics that they were learning and changing the way they looked at the afterlife, from simple death rituals to embalming and creating tombs for the royalty, Anubis was replaced by Osiris as Lord of the Underworld, and he ushered souls into the afterlife. But even then, they still only knew that there was an afterlife, but didn't really know how it worked. If they did know then, they wouldn't have needed to mummify bodies or lay them to rest with their worldly possessions, as none of that helped the soul when it crossed over. I explain about souls and spirits in a later chapter. Another reason why I say that they didn't really know what they were doing is because they all believed that being mummified is the only way to have an afterlife. The corpse had to be properly embalmed and entombed in a mastaba, house for eternity. The issue is that if only those properly mummified in that way reached the afterlife, then how did they know about the afterlife in the first place? Someone would have had to have been mummified before they even knew about the afterlife, and that person would have had to come back and tell them that the only way to the afterlife is mummification. I surmise the premise that the Anunnaki were aware of a soul, at least on Earth, it's possible they were not aware of them on their own planet due to their planet's frequency. I believe they also have souls, see chapter about souls, but they didn't really know how to communicate with a soul, and over time, around the time they were in Egypt, they created tombs and sarcophagi. The Anunnaki have lived longer than we have on Earth, and their race could have been around for one million to one billion years, and yet in this time they haven't worked out death. They struggle to understand it on Earth, and I feel the reason is this. On their planet, they didn't know anything about a soul, but after they created genetically modified humans, they started to see or feel the presence of the dead humans, possibly because the souls within us could manifest themselves easier on Earth. They then took an interest in the afterlife. Scientists Anubis and Osiris wanted their own kind to be the ones that reach the other side and live on forever. Atlantis Atlantis is connected to Egypt through Plato, a philosopher. There's really only one main version of the story of the island of Atlantis that has been passed down through generations which was eventually told by Plato in two dialogues, Timaeus and the Critias. Atlantis being superior in technology compared to any other country. Plato was a philosopher in 428-427 or 424-423 BC in Greece and was the founder of the Athens Academy, which was the first higher learning institution in the Western world. Plato spoke about an Atlantis, but he had never seen it himself. Instead, he heard about it from Solon, a Greek poet and legislator who traveled to Egypt 150 years earlier. I don't believe Solon lived longer than humans, so it would have been in writing that Plato found out about Atlantis. The Egyptians had learned about Atlantis from the Hindus of Punt, Indonesia. In brief, Solon supposedly was told by Egyptian priests that Athenians fought a war with Atlantis about 9,000 years before and were victorious. Shortly after this, Atlantis suffered catastrophic earthquakes and floods until it disappeared beneath the sea, or it moved away and disappeared, leading to speculation that it sank. There are so many theories about where Atlantis is under the ocean, or that it was a huge UFO, or even that Plato just made the whole story up. There are some excellent researchers out there that have been trying to find the real answers, and each one of them make compelling arguments as to where and what Atlantis was, but for now, because there are so many different variations, it's hard to say which, if any, are closest to the truth.
Recently, whistleblowers that have been working for various departments within the Black Ops and the Secret Space Program have been mentioning Atlantis in small fragments, as if it was a real place a long time ago, and that they have a small amount of knowledge about it that they have overheard, but significant enough to have had an effect on Earth's history or future. Their comments about aliens and other above-top-secret information are spot-on, and this makes me believe what they know about Atlantis might be true, but the fragments they talk about are so small we can't make any picture from it. In order to get the full picture, more whistleblowers would need to let us know what they know, and then in turn we can complete the jigsaw. I'll put below some of the theories. Not from the whistleblowers. Atlantis was a continent in the mid-Atlantic that sank into the sea. Atlantis used a power source so powerful that it blew the island up. Atlantis was an island that sank in the Bermuda Triangle and is now what causes interference for ships and planes to vanish over it. Atlantis was really Antarctica. Atlantis was another version of the story of the Black Sea Flood. Atlantis was a Minoan civilization. Atlantis was just a story that Plato made up. Atlantis was a huge, disc-shaped alien spacecraft. Atlantis was on an interdimensional plane and the island was transferred to another dimension. Atlantis was the mythological land called Mu. Atlantis was in Southeast Asia. I'm not sure which I would say is correct. I think there might have been a place that had advanced technology. Was it Anunnaki, Grey Aliens, or another race that lived there? I don't know. I hope you enjoyed this. All links to everything can be found on my website, ourtruehistory.co.uk.